0: is both glorious and tragic because God has led the children of Israel through the wilderness. He's given them this detailed account of this tent that they're supposed to set up. And in this tent, that's tabernacle, it's there that God said, I'm going to meet with you, which is awesome. God is meeting with man. God and sinful man are going to be together reconciled Um, Which, as we learned today in Sunday school, is what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to get back to that pre-fall state. Now, after following meticulous instructions, the people of Israel built the tent, obeyed everything God said, and Moses is finally able to go in. So he walks up to the tent, and what happens? As he approached, the cloud descended. God's glory filled the tabernacle, and Moses wasn't able to enter in. Why? It's because of Moses' sin. Moses is a sinner. And God is perfectly holy. God's perfect presence barred Moses and us from being with God. So we still have no solution for our greatest problem that we started this with, even back in Genesis. The greatest problem for the Israelites was not slavery in Egypt. It was not starvation in the desert. It was sin. So now we come to the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus describes how Yahweh was to be worshipped. God's going to give graciously a very rigorous and intense system. It's called the sacrificial system. And as we even think back about this, we can all read through the Bible as we are doing, and you've experienced it. The stories of Genesis are pretty awesome. They're pretty exciting. The flood, that's pretty fun. Uh, It's not fun, but it's it's interesting. (laughs) It wasn't actually fun at all. (laughs) Have you guys heard that... (laughs) That like comedy bit that Tim Hawkins does about the flood and how we make Noah's Ark like a a children's like a nursery theme. It's often Noah's Ark, and they'll paint like little animals poking their heads out of the Ark. And he's like, you know, that is really you know the mass genocide and destruction of the world by God. It's like, oh look, there's Jeriel like dying on the rock over there. As you know, he's like so. But that's that's an interesting story. Stories like. The creation, the fall, the flood, Joseph, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Those are pretty interesting. And we can even relate to some of these characters, men like Adam and like Abraham and like Joseph and Moses and Rachel and Sarah. As we read and as we come to the book of Leviticus, maybe even as, and you've experienced this, I know I have. We read about a sacrificial system that no longer exists. We read about a priesthood that no longer exists. We, We read about laws that we're no longer under. And so we can ask ourselves a question. So what is it, why is this in the Bible, and how on earth does this apply to me? And I've asked myself that question many times, especially growing up. Well, the book of Leviticus does apply to us, as we're going to find out. It applies to Christians in a very, very, very real way. And as we begin to study the intricacies of this book, we're going to realize that the book is just as important today as it was to the Israelites back then. Why? Because the book of Leviticus tells us and tell them a lot of very important things, if we hope to understand how religion worked, for instance, in Israel, for the Jews, we have to understand the book of Leviticus, probably most importantly, Leviticus provides the theological foundation this is a big, this is like a big key phrase right Leviticus provides the theological foundation for the atoning work of Christ. If, if you think about it, apart from Leviticus, we really have no concept of something taking The guilt, something taking the place of another thing. It's through Leviticus that we, even as harsh as it probably is, I'm going to make a comment about it in the future. We look at that lamb through the book of Leviticus and we kind of understand the picture. We get it. Apart from Leviticus, we don't understand. The very idea of substitutionary sacrifice receives its explanation in this book. Leviticus also demonstrates how important holiness is to God. It's a big deal. Holiness is actually the main theme of Leviticus. God requires us, his people, the children of Israel, to be holy. And holiness is important to him even today. God reminds his people of that crucial fact throughout this entire book. So Leviticus is a record of the words of God in direct speech with his servant Moses. Now, that's pretty cool to me. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I think I wish sometimes even that God could just like audibly speak to us. I I feel like that'd be super easy. So I was... In college, I was wondering, well, what I'm going to do with my life, maybe your experience with God could just, I don't want to, like, irreverently, like, mimic the, the, the voice of God. God saying, hey, Ben, this is probably what you should do the rest of your life. Oh, all right, cool, I'll do it. Yeah, that, to me, that seems really easy, straightforward. But we have something better. We have the Word of God, and we have the Holy Spirit, so we need to accept that. But we receive, through this book, direct speech between God and Moses. And then as we finish out, really the, the main reasons, the cool parts of this book, the New Testament actually alludes to this book quite a bit. Many times the New Testament writers assumed, and we as we, as we read it, they, they seem to have a pretty intricate knowledge of this book of Leviticus. And the readers of the New Testament need this knowledge to understand what they were writing about. It's pretty awesome that we're going through the book of Hebrews, because we've looked at this entire thing from one perspective. Now we're going to take a a step, couple steps to the left and look at it from the other perspective, and hopefully a, and understand it in the context. So as we walk through this book, how do we interpret it to our lives? Because it is, it is deep at times. It is sometimes very confusing. Well, first of all, as Will graciously explained to us before this, we affirm that because Leviticus is in scriptures, it is profitable, and it is good, and God ordained that it be written and inspired it. It is helpful. Second, we're going to read this book through the lens of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, this book is monotonous. This book is crushing because it's constant and its daily. But we're going to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament law is fulfilled in Jesus, even the legal sections like the book of Leviticus. Jesus actually kind of proved that to us. He was, after his resurrection, Jesus met two of his disciples on the road to the town called Emmaus. And he revealed himself to them, and he, the Bible says in the book of Luke, the Bible says, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's Leviticus, that's the law, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus explained to them from the law up till now how he was a fulfillment of all of it. Now finally, we will try to determine what the law meant in its original context. So we're going to identify a couple key principles apply them to our lives. So that's kind of our introduction. That kind of gets us into Leviticus. Are you guys warm? I'm a little it warm. You're not warm. Is anybody <laughs> warm? Yeah, okay. All right, we're
1: going to
0: turn it off for a little bit. Like, wave your arms in like 10 minutes, okay? And I'll turn it off. So that's our introduction to the book of Leviticus. I know that was pretty fast, but we'll be able to rehash these things. The book about worshiping God. Now, Jordan was almost stealing some of my my personal uh, uh, story for this Uh, today in in Sunday school, so I was trying to kick him under the table, but he was too far away. Now, growing up with my dad as a pastor, I've mentioned that several times, I was around churches, weddings, funeral homes, graveyards, counseling sessions, choirs, door-to-door visits, hospitals and church people my entire life. and Even now, I'm still around those things a lot, so I'm sensing a pattern here. And I observed a lot of people with a lot of needs. And what is universally true about is that people try to cope with their circumstances. We all do it. We have circumstances in our lives. We have to, through our eyes, we have to cope with things, these things somehow. Now, for Christians especially, we have to cope with our sin. We have to come to grips with it. What is it? How does it affect us? We have to be honest with ourselves. And some people have unique ways of making themselves feel good about their sin. Maybe you've heard of people attending church only on Easter and Christmas, and that kind of cleanses their their conscience. They feel a little bit better about themselves. Maybe after a rough week, they slip a couple extra bucks into the offering plate. Kind of, okay, I kind of ease my conscience. Or even they go so far as to say something kind about the pastor's message on the way out the door. Like, Reverend, that was... Right. That's what we call him, Pastor Vaughn We call him reverence That's probably kind of weird we call him reverence He hates it But it's funny um, they, Pastor that was That was an incredible sermon And out they go And they, they feel good about themselves. Now I don't know how you View your sin Or maybe how you think God deals with your sin But when I was in junior high I had a rather interesting I believe this like, <laughs> This is, yeah, is going to be fun uh, When I was in junior high In high school I was convinced That if I sinned Right God would cause my favorite sports teams to lose. I don't know where I got that idea. I... Kevin, stop it. I'm coming to that. Kevin's laughing because he knows where I'm going with this. Now, as a Cleveland Browns fan, now this may not mean anything to you all, but they're a football team, right? They're really, 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 really bad. They used to be really, really good. and then, and then ben, and then Ben was born. right? And so, from 7th from grade up to my senior year, the Cleveland Browns played 144 games, right? That's, that's how many games they played. They won 46 of those. So that's 70% of the games that they played in my life, they lost. That's not great. That's a, that's a 30% on a test. Now, for a teen who thought that God judged him because of his sin by causing his sports team to lose... I, I, was, I was a mess growing up I was, I didn't, I literally It was bad, I was like, God hates me This is, this is not good Now thankfully, as I grew And I learned, I realized that God doesn't God doesn't treat people that way as, I, as a Christian, there's nothing I can do To make God love me more There's nothing I can do to make God love me less As difficult as that is to accept And thankfully that, you know, I, I learned that I grew that God doesn't plague me Because of my sin Why? Well, because Christ took my sin and my guilt, and therefore I'm delivered from the wrath of God. The children of Israel, however, didn't have Christ yet. They knew that their sin barred them from God's presence, and their only solution was to come to God. So you're in Leviticus 1. We're going to look at the first sacrifice, the first thing that God really revealed to them as to how they were going to worship him. And this, I think it's very interesting that he starts with it. You can probably even see the heading we're going to start reading in verse 3. It's about burnt offerings, and it's going to get a little gross, but, you know, bear, bear with me here, and we're going to hopefully make a couple interesting points. Verse 3, we're going to start reading. God said, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand. This is the priest. Oh, I'm sorry. No, nope, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Verse five. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put it on the fire of the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the altar, that is on the fire on the altar, verse 9. But it's entrails, but it's guts. And it's legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar, as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma before the Lord. So that's what we understand to be a burnt offering. So that in verse 3, if his offering was a burnt offering... So if a man sinned, if someone sinned, he had to sacrifice this animal. Now God is going to allow for three types of animals most to be used for these. And we're going to get to that in a second. But what was the purpose of it? Well, that's in verse 4, and you probably even saw that. Verse 4 tells us the purpose of this burnt offering. It was to make atonement for him. And now that's a key word. You can see even by the, the subheading of our series, the God who atones. The word atone has the idea of purging, the idea of cleaning the life The sacrificial animal was given in place of the life of a worshiper and was the ransom payment for the death that that worshiper had earned. God symbolized atonement for sin in this sacrificial system. Now in order for sin to be removed and covered, God's righteous wrath had to be satisfied. Death must be the result of sin. And the sacrificial system was the means of that death. The animal died because of the worshiper's sins Now God's wrath was satisfied And then the worshiper could be reconciled to God So the Israelite of some means The wealthy Israelite You can see maybe see in verse 3-5 to five, As we read, would offer a bull Bulls would be rather expensive So if you were rich, that would be kind of what you were offering The Israelite of average means Maybe a middle class Would offer a sheep And you see that in verse 10 While the poor would offer a bird And that's in verse 14 And what we get from that is that God has no indication here that he desires to deprive his worshippers. Now, that's pretty gracious of God. He told them how to worship him, and he made it able for all of these people to have the means to pay for these animals. Now, there was nothing magical about these animals or the process of killing or burning the animals. Actually, nothing at all. What mattered to God was his command that they obey and their willingness to do that. And that goes against everything that humans are. We don't want to obey God. We don't want to submit to God. We, we want to do the opposite. That's why we sin. That's why we're fallen. Every time an Israelite worshiper killed a sacrificial animal, watched the priest sprinkle the blood on the altar and cut the animal into pieces and watched the blood from the body of the animal burn on the altar, God gave a vivid demonstration of the fact that sin leads to death. Now, I don't know how many of you are into hunting. Probably not many of us. Kevin is for sure. My mother, bless her little Italian heart, is the most sensitive individual. I've told you how I unwisely named stink bugs Bert in our house, and now she can't kill stink bugs because she imagines that they have families. She's 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 a nut. It's not my fault if I have some oddities. Um, but my grandfather was a... He, he's a huge hunter. He loves hunting. He built this awesome hunting cabin up in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and we'll go up there sometimes. There's this super deep creek, like massively deep creek at the base of the mountain. My brother and I would throw goggles on, super clear water, fresh water, and we'd swim to the bottom. Like, we'd swim to the bottom, grab these massive rocks and like walk around the bottom of this creek. It was the greatest thing in the summer times. My grandfather, however, would wake up at three and go bear hunting. That's what he loves to do. He loves to go bear hunting. And he, and he killed one, and he'd put it on the wall up in our, up in our mountain cabin. He named it something. I don't remember. He shot it thirteen times. Before it died. It was it was charging at him. Thirty out six. <laughs> a Thirty out six. Thirty six and he puffed 30. it thirteen times and then it died. So it That's it it, really was really it was massive. It was yeah. It, it was intense. It was low intense. Low. <laughs> so yeah, so that one's on the wall. So one time my grandfather was hunting, right, bear hunting in the middle of the night. And he saw a bear. Well, I say in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning. That's that's when you have to get out there. And he saw a bear crawling on the woods. It only wasn't a bear, it was a man who was dressed up in an entirely black wool outfit because he wanted to trick the bear to think he was a bear. So, so the bear would approach him, and then he could kill the bear. It was like literally like in the sights of my grandpa And he was like, I don't think that's fair So, needless to say, my mother On those hunting trips She'd be sick, sick to her stomach she, she couldn't emotionally handle That my brother and dad And grandfather were going out and killing These innocent animals So as I'm reading through this book of Leviticus I, Literally, my mom and her sensitivity And she would be very thankful For the truths that the sacrificial system offers She really would be but she would really not enjoy reading the book of Leviticus, and that's probably why she does not very often. If she thinks about it, she literally, she'll start crying if she watches hunting videos or whatever or on Facebook. It's, she's bad. My mom's a very sensitive individual. But why did the sacrificial system have to involve death? Well, first, as we've said, sin leads to death. Secondly, God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. And he is so holy that no sin is allowed in his presence. Now we've sinned, we understand that. So our sin has to be taken away in order for us to be in God's presence and to worship him and to fellowship with him. God's means of taking away that sin during the old covenant was through this sacrificial system. Now to me it seems maybe even as you're thinking through these, it seems pretty easy to trick the system, right? So I sin, I go by a bird, the priest kills it, I say a couple nice words or whatever, and then off off I go. I'm done. Sweet. God and I are friends again. We're good to go. But God wasn't solely concerned. Even the emphasis that he puts on these rote rituals, he wasn't so much concerned with the sacrifices. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 40 about God. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. He says, you do not ask for a whole burnt offering. He says, you delight in men to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. For worshipers and worship to be acceptable to God even today, it must be present Faith must be present with obedience. So God really isn't concerned with us showing up to church and looking the part per se, doing the right things. No, God's concerned about what's in our hearts. What matters to God is the intent of our heart. It wasn't the smoke of the sacrifice that pleased God. It was the desire of the worshiper to be reconciled to God and in his obedience and conforming to God's requirement. And thank God that because of his mercy he provided the means of atonement. Now as we looked at that, as we read that first sacrifice, and I was even supposed to cover two other ones. I was supposed to cover a grain sacrifice and a peace offering. I, but I really wanted to focus on this, this first one because I feel like this one's foundational. And that's the reason Moses puts it first when he's recording this. As we look at this sacrificial system described through the lens of Jesus Christ, we can pretty much clearly see how Leviticus foreshadows Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. These sacrifices were physical acts, absolutely. They had to kill these animals. But they pointed to spiritual realities. They pointed to the holiness of God, because sin must be removed. They pointed to the mercy of God, provided a means for the sin to be taken away. And he invites people, sinful people, into his presence. They pointed to the desire of the worshiper to be right with God, because they were obeying his requirements. And ultimately, they pointed to the Messiah, Announced in Genesis 3.15 That the seed of the woman would strike the head of the serpent As Lizzie shouted out this morning It's the whole snake thing, right? The whole, the whole, the whole snake thing It was a perfect answer and You were so right Does anyone know what that Genesis 3.15 is called? The proto-evangelium First time the gospels ever mentioned The proto-evangelium Evangelium? 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 Yeah, evangelium <laughs> Genesis 3.15, foundational. The the New Testament says that Jesus is that seed. And as Hebrews, I know, shocking, we're going to talk about Hebrews. As Hebrews 9.26 says about Jesus, he has appeared one time at the end of the age for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Apart from Jesus, the book of Leviticus is overwhelming because that burnt offering was offered twice a day. The priest at the tabernacle, they would hold and they would accept animals for that burnt offering twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. So if, if you sinned in between the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, you had an opportunity to go offer an animal in the evening. If you sinned in the night before the morning sacrifice, well, in the next morning you had to go offer it. It was, it was constant. It was constant. And apart from Jesus... It seems fatal. Hebrews 10.10 says, By the will of God, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because that was God's plan all along. The sacrificial system of the Old Covenant was God's classroom where He taught the principle of atonement by the means of sacrifice. And as Paul puts it in Galatians 3, the law is our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. God used the sacrificial system to teach and prepare us For the sacrifice of Jesus. So even as we kind of wrap up, Jesus takes away our sins because he died as our sacrifice totally on the cross. Romans 4 7 through 8 says, Blessed are those, blessed blessed are we, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now it's a great joy to know that our sins are forgiven once and for all through Jesus Christ and that God invites us to experience that joy. The Israelites should have been profoundly grateful, as they were, that the almighty, holy God of the universe was inviting them into his presence. And so should we. So as we jump further into the book of Leviticus in the upcoming weeks, and we won't be in Leviticus terribly long. It's not going to be a book that we really park in for a year. There are some awesome truths that we need to grasp before we continue in th- through the Old Testament. We're going to see this this concept of atonement, of a need, of a sacrifice that needs to be paid. So, as, as we conclude, maybe you... I mean, we all know the story. We, we, we all know Jesus is that sacrifice, but maybe you're like me and you're growing up and you're even tempted to try to earn your way to God, right? You, are, you see your sin and you see that God requires holiness and if, if only you could try a little harder... Maybe God will accept you because of your effort, and you're doing the right things, and why won't God accept me? No. Maybe you're like me in that sense. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried to fight sin, and you can't, and you were just overwhelmed. Well, the Israelites no doubt would have felt that time and time again. But we look to Christ as we sang, and we we run to Christ, our great God. So as we pray, Kevin's going to come up, and we're going to sing the final song marvelous grace of our loving Lord, because that's really what sets us apart. It's the grace of God. Now, the grace of God wasn't void in in the Old Testament. We sometimes think of the Old Testament God as this harsh God that is really structural. No, no, no. The grace of God was just as present there because of the sacrificial system as it is in Jesus Christ. So we want to praise Him for that grace. We want to praise Him for His love. So let's pray. We'll do Jesus is better than everything else, and then we'll sing a song. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this passage. We thank you for your love. Thank you for the book of Leviticus. Sometimes overwhelming and deep and confusing as it may be, we thank you that you gave that book to us, that we can say that we can see your love for humanity, that you will be willing to set up that system so that we could come before you. Sinful man coming before a holy God face to face. We praise you for that. We're overwhelmed by it. Thank you, Lord, now that we can come boldly through Jesus Christ. I pray for these teens. I pray for these college kids. I pray for even adults, Lord, even down in the main service, that we would see your face, that we would see you as more lovely than our sin. We pursue you with everything we have. We love you, Lord. In the name I pray. Amen.